Welcome back. This is episode eight of No Truths Barred, and I'm your host, Hoikuweku Timmons, and the handle is the same on all of my social media outlets. It's Hoyt, H-O-Y-T, underscore Kuweku, K-W-A-K-U, underscore Timmons, that's T-I-M-M-O-N-S. And you can follow me on all of those. Make sure you do for the latest updates uh, regarding No Truths Barred podcast. Also, this is episode eight, and if you missed the previous seven episodes or any of the previous episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com. That's www.soundcloud.com slash no truce barred. Also, you can go on Spotify. So if you're a listener or you have a uh, membership on Spotify, you can go on there and you can listen to previous episodes of the podcast. So thank you again. I, I never take for granted anybody that's listening to the podcast, whether you agree with me or uh, if you have a dissenting opinion or whatever it is. I believe that uh, the open exchange of ideas make things fruitful. And that is the impetus for me starting this podcast. And once again, I've told you guys earlier, um, a few weeks back, I think for episode five or six, I think it was episode six, I had um, an up and coming producer, a godly one. Make sure you uh, follow him. You can go back and, and listen to that podcast. And uh, follow him on his uh, social media handles and, you know, listen to some of his instrumentals. But I'm going to have a gentleman coming up uh, in the next few weeks who is a biologist and autodidactic researcher about ancient Egyptian history. And we've had a a really great conversation. So I want to bring this gentleman on and I know we're going to have a great a well-informed conversation, and I think it'll be good because you'll actually be able to hear me have a discussion with another guest. So um, stay tuned. That'll probably be sometime towards the end of August or the first part of September. So stay tuned, and I have three other really great guests lined up after that. So uh, stay tuned, and, and I appreciate you all of the shares, the clicks, the likes, the comments. Uh, everything and also let me not forget to mention uh, a, a YouTube channel shall be coming sometime in the month of August as well. That's something I'm working towards. So as time goes on, uh, you know the snowball effect is beginning to happen uh, as far as bringing forth um, the best possible product that I can give you, the listener. Uh, never taking you guys for granted. So let's jump in. So. As you know, we we had two previous debates, um, Democratic debates. So these are the hopefuls for the 2020 election. And I don't know every uh, candidate's name, but, you know, the usuals are Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, uh, the mayor of New York, something de Blasio, I apologize, Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard. Elizabeth Warren, and I think anyone else, I'm not certain what their name is. So I'm watching these debates and I'm listening to these politicians trying to pander to people, to people's votes. And a lot of it is extremely disingenuous because if you notice with a lot of the Democrats, I think one of the things that is going to work against the Democrats is the fact that they're ignoring large quantities of demographics uh, within their various constituencies 
on whatever district they may or may not may come from. Excuse me, I said may not come from. What am I talking about? So the hot button topic is immigration, LGBT rights, which isn't wrong, but you notice that's really what they hearken to. So as as I was watching these debates, I think about my own journey and my somewhat intermediate understanding of politics. I won't claim to be an expert or a political scientist or a political theorist, but I am somewhat acclimated with the various processes of our political system. So I was watching this debate and something came to my mind. And I'm going to take this quote from former governor of Minnesota by the name of Jesse Ventura. And I, I think he possibly may have gotten this quote from another source. But he said something that was very key to me. And it's something that stuck with me every time I watch any sort of debate. Whether it be on the right, whether it be on the left, this this term, this quote, this phrase is stuck with me. He called our political system a two-party dictatorship. Wow, right? Two-party dictatorship. Based on the illusion of choice. You have choice, but choice fits within the parameters of what we offer you. This is choice. And the more I thought about that, I thought about my own research. You know, I think about lobbying. I think about the military industrial complex. I think about the prison industrial complex. I think about the money that politicians have to solicit in order to even run for president. You know, I think about... Donald Trump uh, just working at the behest of Wall Street, but it's not just him, it's really every president. Barack Obama received a lot of money from Goldman Sachs. Uh, Hillary Clinton was was taking private meetings with, with Wall Street firms right and left. So it leads me to believe, is there really an option? Is there really a choice? But before we go further, I always believe that it's a great thing to have some sort of fundamental understanding of how these two branches, not branches of government, but these two political systems formed. And I don't want to be too verbose about uh, the origins of the the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, but I just feel that it's imperative to understand. So as we all know, you know, this is thing, these are things that we probably learn in a civics course or um, an entry level political science course in college or junior college or wherever. Or if, you know, just in your own leisure, um, you know, we know that the Democratic Party was started some ramp some sometime around. I believe mind you, I apologize, folks, I'm pulling from my own understanding uh, sometime around the 1780s or the 1790s. Um, and a lot of the members that came to constitute uh, what would become the Democratic Party were earlier part of a joint Democratic Republican Party. And, you know, this was founded by people such as Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And, you know, feel free to go in on me, listeners. This is coming from memory. Uh, And and they were members of the Anti-Federalists. And, 
you had this rift between the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist. And so uh, what the, the Anti-Federalist feared, they feared that a central government um, was a threat to the, from, uh, I'm trying to pull this, the, a central government was a threat to the, to the rights and the autonomy of a state, for a state to be able to operate and, and exercise its full autonomy and to be able to, to uh, consolidate its, its power in lieu of being part um, of a larger union or country, if you will. And the anti-federalists, they preferred a government um, really as formed in the 1780, in 1781, excuse me, by the Articles of Confederation. Um, and what the Articles of Confederation did, this really granted a lot of power uh, to state governments. Um, and, and it was a fear that the uh, a lot of the, um, the British-ruled uh, American colonies um, would be under like this, uh, under a great consolidation and it would li really limit the power of states and their own personal autonomy. Yes, I know my political buffs and theorists are going to crucify me. Um, bear with me. I do these podcasts <laughs> off memory and off of my old uh, research. I might start writing stuff down. Now, um, let's let me dig into this library of a brain. So you had the Federalist Papers. And um, the Federalist Papers were composed by Alexander Hamilton, as we, uh, as, course, as of course we all know, James Madison and John Jay, from what I can remember. And what the Federalist Papers did, uh, they were it was an eighty-five page article, and the and the the purpose of the Federalist Papers was to assure Americans that uh, government, um, that the federal government was not going to overpower the states, and it was one of you know, that and Common Sense by Thomas Paine, I think were some of the earliest political uh, doctrines to really be circulated, um, uh, not doctrines, but writings, excuse me, to be circulated around the early colonies. And you start to get your seeds of a Democratic Party um, from this particular point. Um, now, if you're talking about the origins of the Republican Party, it's a little bit different. Now, the term Republican actually can go back. Uh, it was first used in the year 1792. Um, I want to say it was used by Benjamin Franklin. Uh, this is where Cliff Notes and PowerPoints will come handy. So damn good right now. <laughs> but uh, you you had... Um, Benjamin Franklin, it, it, the term goes back to, I believe, seven. I want to say 1792, sometime between 1791-1793, the term Republican or Republic, because uh, we are a Republic. I know a lot of times we say the United States is a democracy, but we really are a Republic. You know, you listen to your Pledge of Allegiance. Um, in the Pledge of Allegiance, you say, to the Republic for which it stands, you know, one nation under God, etc., etc., so we really are in a republic, and honestly, I would argue now we're in a in a paradigm really of crony capitalism, corporatism, you know, an oligopoly, if you will. Ah, big fifty dollar word that I couldn't get out of my mouth. So that's kind of where we're at now. And so if you look at the Republican Party, the formation of the Republican Party is a little bit different because if you remember, you have you go back. 
And, you know, uh, one of the big issues was the Missouri Compromise, which happened in uh, 1854, I believe. I could be off with the year. But one of the big issues was um, admitting um, Missouri as a slave state to the Union, because at that particular time period, there had to be an equal balance of slave states and free states. So the trade-off was Missouri could become admitted to the Union, um, but also Maine was admitted to maintain that balance of uh, uh, free and slave states. And you really get the Republican Party out of the growth to stop slavery. Um, uh, it really came to it really. But the advent really kind of grew because it was a combination of the Whigs, I think a few northern Democrats. Um, and I can't remember the other constituency that would have been part of the Democratic Party. But one of the biggest things was to stop the opening up of the West for slavery not because of the moral ramifications of slavery, but you have people like the Free Soilers um, and many uh, uh, what would be Republicans and Whigs that wanted to keep those territories open for free labor. Because if you have slavery, um, really, you know, and a lot of times when you, you listen to racist talk, a lot of racists will say stuff like, oh, we used to own you guys or we, we you know, you guys were our slaves and all of this nonsense. But in, the re- in reality, slavery wasn't good for the masses of white people because you had these rich, wealthy plantation owners that can undercut you and provide free labor and you can't work. You can't feed yourself. So actually, when, when you know, or at best, if you was like a white person without money, you might have on a good in a good circumstance, you might have been some type of yeoman farmer and you might have been able to temporarily hire the help of a slave to help you toy your field. Um, but, you know, for the most part, the ending of slavery actually provided more land and and, and, and greater uh, ways for uh, many disenfranchised and poor, poor white people to gain upward mobility in a society. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm scatterbrained with this, but I just feel I'm kind of reaching for memory. So I, I, I want to make sure that <laughs> I want to make sure that we kind of get a good understanding of or a semi good understanding of Republican and Democrat. And um, so you see these different these different uh, political parties. And so that's really where, you know, that came from um, just allowing free labor. You know, Abraham Lincoln said, you know, if I could preserve the union without freeing slaves, I would definitely do it. Uh, He was not about the edification of black people in this particular in this particular circumstance and in this country. Um, So we have two parties that begin to emerge. And over time, you see different uh, presidents uh, align themselves with different parties. And it's funny because. You really don't see the switch of black folks supporting the Democratic Party. I think until the time of about LBJ. Um, prior to that, a lot of black people were Republican. As you remember, Frederick Douglass, uh, he was a Republican. Um, a lot of times the Democrats, what they called the Solid South, they would use the Ku Klux Klan uh, as, a, as a terrorist branch to prevent black people from voting. Uh, the Democratic Party, uh, the I believe the Georgia governor or the Alabama governor, the real racist guy, George Wallace, he was a Democrat. 
Um, Democratic Party was highly racist at one point, uh, supported slavery. But during uh, LBJ and you see the civil rights movement, the roles and the tides started to change a little bit. So you said, Hoyt, you just took us on this verbose, uh, verbose, excuse me, journey into history about the Democratic and Republican Party. Um, why? What was the point? And there were certain points you may not have touched on or you didn't touch on. I went back because I want to encourage you guys to do your own research as well. But we have to know where we come from to know where we're going. We have to know what is the problem. Here's the issue. So where does the influence of big money in politics come from? So we go back. You can look as far back as really as the 1920s, because when you look at the United States uh, involvement in Cuba before the uh, overthrow of uh, Manuel uh, Batista uh, in Cuba, a lot of politicians and the mafia really was down there running things and controlling things. This was done through influence and done through money. But you really start to get into big money really through warfare. It's a book by um, General Smedley Butler. He wrote this book in the 1930s, and the book is called War is a Racket. And in the book, he talks about how war, the impetus for war, at least in the in, in the Western Hemisphere, is profit. Many big corporations have influence in war. Many arm, man, arms manufacturers, excuse me, have influence in war. And these people really have our our politicians under their thumb to operate at their behest. And these things, this information, it kind of it kind of jades me a little bit about the political system. You know, and it's not just Wall Street that has this influence but i mean primarily it is because you look at uh if you look at any president i'm gonna say really the last five presidents if you will have all operated under the thumb of the military industrial complex and corporations and wall street because when you can lobby and you have millions of dollars to spend with a politician It gets you a little, your seat is a little bit closer at the table with that politician and they're a little bit more apt to hear what you have to say. And it's human nature because you're providing copious amounts of funds for their campaign to pay them possibly. And a lot of times as human beings, we don't want to mess a good thing up. And it gets really corrupt. It gets really intertwined because you can also come down to the point where you have negative propaganda spread to maintain a certain hierarchy of power here in the United States. 
you know, not not just, you know, people like General Smedley Butler, but people like Malcolm X pointed this out as well. Um, people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. pointed this out. Uh, President, I'm going to forget his name, but President, uh, help me. Anyway, you have one of the presidents, I believe the president before JFK, I can't remember his name, Eisenhower, Dwight D. Eisenhower. He said in his, one of his last speeches leaving office, he indicated that as Americans, we have to be wary of this military industrial complex. Um, and I agree. And it's not just a military industrial complex, but it's just complex working congruently with Wall Street. Because when you have this type of money that you can funnel into the pockets of politicians, then the playing field of policy and putting forth innovative ideas and implementing things that are going to help the masses of Americans, the playing field becomes slanted. And things that can actually help people on a medicinal level can become illegal. Like, for example, when we look at the at marijuana, if you go all the way back to the 1920s, the real uh, the real uh, uh, propaganda against Marijuana goes back to when Mexicans were immigrating to the U.S. Uh, because of war and whatnot that was going on in Mexico. And a lot of these people smoked what they call marijuana or cannabis. And according to a gentleman, I can't remember his name, but the last name you can look him up is Anslinger. Uh, A-N-G-S-L-I-N-G-E-R. And he was one of uh, one of the, the most vocal opponents of marijuana and the way to instill fear about marijuana in the general public was to say that marijuana caused mad- madness, uh, delusion, insanity. And, and to top it all off is that marijuana can can uh, <laughs> marijuana will cause Mexican and black men to want to rape white women. I guess, you know, no other woman would have been on, on the, the menu, but this particular drug was, was, was responsible for those sorts of things. And you also look at the fact that not only that these early, um, these early uh, forms of propaganda not only stop or prohibit um, a potential plant that could help millions of people, but it also allowed for cigarette and alcohol companies to really consolidate and ossify their uh, hold here in America. Um, you look at Altria, you know, one of the, the biggest tobacco companies on planet Earth, and they send so many millions of dollars to politicians annually. Um, and they're allowed to lobby. Uh, they, they can they can. Uh, finance anti-marijuana propaganda same thing with a lot of liquor and alcohol companies for example you know i think this is the proof into why liquor and liquor and, and tobacco companies have to go this far to lobby and influence politicians republican or democrat to uh 
acquiesce to their wants is because since marijuana has become legal in Colorado, sales and alcohol have dropped by at least 38.9%. Sales and cigarettes have dropped. Not as much, I believe, possibly like 17, 18% uh, since marijuana has been legalized in Colorado. Also, look at the infinite medicinal purposes. My reason for going on the tangent about marijuana and tobacco and liquor companies lobbying politicians is because the two-party dictatorship is, is are the legs of the corporations such as Altria, such as uh, the liquor companies, such as the banks, such as Wall Street firms that allow them to do things and to pass laws and legislature that are racist, biased, and uneven and ill-informed just because the right people can grease the right pockets of the right politicians and get these uh, asinine policies passed through. And that's the tobacco companies, you know, and it's funny because you go back and you look at, you know, uh, 1936, the concept of of reefer madness. And the guy's name was Harry, Harry Anslinger. That was his name. It came to me just now. Um, And he actually uh, was the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics during the Prohibition era. And he was responsible for putting out a lot of propaganda about marijuana and it's tied to. Uh, nefarious behavior amongst black people. And I want to give you a smaller example of what I mean with uh, Wall Street or big corporations involvement in this two-party dictatorship. So in Arizona, uh, I was reading about this a while back. In Arizona, there is a, uh, a drug company by the name of Insys, and I think it's spelled I-N-S-Y-S, Insys Therapeutics, um, and they're based out of Arizona. If They're a, a, a medicine a pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical company, excuse me. And what these people have done, they have, through their own funding and through their own money, they've given uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to local Arizona um, politicians. Reason being is that they've developed a drug called uh, dronibinol, and that's spelled D-R-O-N-A-B-I-N-O-L, dronibinol. Dronibinol, what it's supposed to do is that patients that are going through chemotherapy, those particular patients, they're able to take this drug and it's supposed to alleviate the sickness, the nausea, um, and a lot, a lot of other bad sit- symptoms that people suffer while they're going through chemotherapy. Now, why would a company company like this have to spend so much money to lobby politicians? It's because marijuana does the same thing for way cheaper. And not only that, you could grow it in your own home. Yeah. So all of these years, we've been told stay away from drugs. Marijuana is a gateway drug. But what marijuana is, if there, if it is a gateway, if it is indeed a gateway, it's a gateway to taking the rug from under a lot of these pharmaceutical companies. And sometimes they said that 
people that try to introduce natural medicines, sometimes unfortunate things happen to those folks. I don't know what those unfortunate things might be, but this is what I've been told. And it's, it's, it's sickening in, in a way. And, and we have to really examine how do we constitutionally prevent the influence of big money in government, whether it be the state level or the federal level? What are the pragmatic solutions for these issues? Because that's one. So one level is medicine, pharmaceuticals. Tobacco, marijuana. Another aspect is war. You have to look at it that way. War, war, like uh, General Smedley Butler, General Smedley Butler said, in "War is a racket." It's a huge money-making machine. Like President Eisenhower said, "Be wary, be aware of what's happening." And Donald Trump is as idiotic and dumb as he is. He actually slipped and said something really smart a few weeks ago. He said, when I wanted to pull troops out of Syria and out of all of these places, he said people jumped up. People wanted people to stay there and stay in war. This lets you know that it's so many interconnected moving pieces and people getting paid off of warfare that they don't have an end game. The only end game is to uh, is is to uh, augment and expand uh, U.S. military hegemony in a lot of these places. And I don't want this podcast to seem anti-U.S. because it's not. I'm not against our government. I think we live in a great country. I just think that us as citizens, we're not informed enough. We don't care enough, and there's too much money that can influence and sway a lot of our politicians. And really, I think we have to find a way to make that illegal. And, and it may be some uh, bureaucratic stuff that, is, you know, unbeknownst to me that does kind of make that illegal. But there, there might be uh, loopholes that the lawyers for these corporations can find and get around and, you know, slide under in order to keep pushing money into Congress. Uh, Joe Rogan had a... Um, a constitutional scholar on his podcast from Harvard. And he Mm -hmm. he emphasized that congressmen spend 68.7 of their, excuse me, 68.7% of their time soliciting funds and the remainder of their time working on actual policy. What does that tell you? You know, you look at how much we, we want to go to war in this country. And I think back to the, the Iraq war, the second uh, Iraq war, not Desert Storm. But you look at that war and you look at Halliburton and Halliburton under Dick Cheney made 38 billion on the Iraq war. Let me say that again. They made 38 billion dollars on the Iraq war. Through rebuilding infrastructure, arms, and other private uh, government contracts. And I believe also if you go over there and you work as a contractor, you get paid tax-free. You get $250,000. You keep every single cent and dime of that money. 
you look at uh an, an, another company like uh Lockheed Martin huge arms manufacturer huge make tons of money from war from missiles to airplanes to uh uh arms manufacturing um DynCorp which Hillary Clinton has met with on a few different times and it's not just Democrats and it's not just Republicans it's both parties and this is why I call this podcast dinner for three Democrats Republicans and Wall Street I'm not I don't have the total answer for how we reconcile this situation but I want us to talk I want the dialogue to start so I have a few solutions in my opinion. And I think I want to come back with some guests. This is one of those episodes. I've said it in two others. But this is an episode I want to come back to. And I want to do a part two. Because there's so much I want to give you guys. But I wanted to kind of cover everything. But my solutions are. We have to find. Because you hear people like AOC. You hear people like Elizabeth Warren. You hear people like Bernie Sanders have all of these great novel ideas that they want to implement. But this is the problem. Until we can stop big money from infiltrating this way into our government and into into, uh, influencing our politicians, all of these things really aren't going to come to fruition. And that's the huge issue. And nobody's mentioning stopping big money. Nobody's talking about the Federal Reserve. Nobody's, listen, let me not get myself in trouble. Nobody's not talking about (laughs) the big money coming in from Wall Street, the big money coming from Exxon, BP, uh, uh, Lockheed Martin, um, Goldman Sachs. We're not talking about any of this stuff. And until we begin to talk about these things, and not even just talk, but we have to have a, our politicians willing to stand up against such corporatism that is is bringing on a different level of decadence on our government. Until that happens, how do we move forward? If we know that the, the a person with the right amount of money can come in and sway a politician to go in a different direction. And that's the discussion I would like to have with the 2020 candidates. What are you going to do to really bring an actual change to this society and to actually stop the crony capitalism that's going on? Because if you look on one end, Obama bailed out the banks. The argument is that the banks, if the banks went down, the economy would have went down, the dollar would have tanked. But... Correct me if I'm wrong, Adam Smith, but shouldn't the, the invisible hand guide the market, free market? If you fail, you fail. If you, you know, whatever. And once again, the caveat is I am not an economist, but that should be that should be how things go in a free market society, in theory. But when regular people want assistance from the government to not fall through the cracks they're told hey lace yourself up by your bootstraps pull yourself up you want socialism but surprise 
we do have socialism. We have, excuse me, we do have socialism. We have a mixture of different facets that make this government possible. Another thing we have to do is to focus focus on. Excuse me, folks. Ah. <laughs> Another thing we have to do is to focus on local elections. Many people go out and they run the vote for the president. That gets everybody's attention. But many people don't know about their local councilmen or aldermen. People don't really know a lot about what their mayor plans to do in, the, in their particular city or town. Um, many people don't know who their, who their state delegate or the delegate of their district, district is. These are things that most people don't know. And if we really want to affect change as a country and as a populace, we have to make sure that we're voting in progressive people. But not just progressive people, because sometimes progressive just means anything far left I'm down with. Progressive should mean, yes, I'm on the left, but I'm also I'm also somewhat of a centrist as well to where I'm trying to look at all of my constituents, all of the demographics that I serve in my district and make things and make policies that are going to benefit your constituents. And not just maybe one particular group. But furthermore, we have to elect politicians that aren't scared to castigate the status quo. One of the first people, um, and she ran for the Green Party in 2008. She was a Democrat, but ran and broke off and ran for the Green Party is Cynthia McKinney. And Cynthia, Cynthia McKinney has questioned big money in government, the Federal Reserve, um, the Iraq war, a lot of things that have some nefarious debris, if you will, associated with it. We had a, polit- a politician like that question. So I think really where the change is going to start is where we start to elect more progressive mayors, aldermen, city council people, governors, senators, and move forward from that point. But so many times we're so focused on the presidential elections, but the presidential election is important. But what's more important is who you elect as your senators, because if you have if you're a Democrat, but it's a a Republican controlled house, it's going to be really hard for your Democratic official to get a lot done. Although in theory, a president is supposed to be bipartisan. If you're a Republican and as we have right now, a Democratic controlled house it's really hard for your your elected official to get a lot of stuff done. You know, sorry, we don't live in a dictatorship and we do have three branches of government, which, you know, thank God we do have. Um, (laughs) So that's another thing I feel that we really have to do and we really have to work on. And the last thing is to really treat politicians like public servants. When senators can leave Congress and they can get all of this money for the rest of their life and just all of these insane perks. No. No, at at the most, at the most, at the most, they shouldn't get any more than about 70 grand a year for doing that. We have to make this like a job. And it is a job. I'm not saying that it's not like a job now. 
But but as as it is right now, politics attracts narcissists and egomaniacs, in which is kind of similar in a, to a certain uh, degree. It attracts narcissists, egomaniacs, and people that are just worried about making money. And a lot of these politicians, they're going to tell you whatever they think you want to hear in order to get your vote and to make money. And that's what's paramount to them. And so my my argument in the close this out is that we do live in a two party dictatorship. We do live in a in a society where politicians are the puppets of corporations, the puppets of Wall Street, and many facets of the military industrial complex. But it doesn't have to be. And what I encourage is for us to make sure that we really vet candidates that we want to vote for. To make sure that we vote for people who have a good track record in their community. People who really truly are trying to change things from the, for the better and trying to make this a society that is advantageous for all Americans and not just a few. And yeah, that sounds cliche and we've all heard it before. But as a populace, we have the power to elect those sorts of people. And we have to have a paradigm shift in our electoral system. And we can't keep attracting people that just want want money and who are just narcissists at the end of the day. You have to think, what is it about the job of president that would even attract someone like Donald Trump? You have to like what what about that job is attractive to a guy like that? We have to think about that. What what would pull him in? He could Donald Trump is a billionaire. He could have did a million things. He could have been an actor. He could have started a, a dance studio. He could have whatever. He had he has the funds to do it allegedly. You know, we haven't seen them tax returns. I don't I don't know. But uh it's something about that job that just attracts the wrong folks. And I think Obama for what it's worth was a decent president. Um, his Some of his foreign policy, did I agree with? Definitely not. Um, do I think he did some great things while he was president? Yes. But that's not neither here nor there because I'm going to dedicate another podcast to talking about Barack Obama and trying to give as much of an objective opinion as I can about Obama. But... um. I want everybody to think and I want everybody to next time you go and vote, I don't care who it is from your city council person to the to the 2020 election. Really vet these candidates. See what exactly what they're talking about. But also don't be manipulated into the two party dictatorship rhetoric, but also I don't I want you to vote. I want you to exercise your right to vote because many people have fought and died for us to vote. I believe in voting. Exercise your right and your power and your privilege to vote. But don't fall into the delusion like these two parties are actually against each other. Because honestly, they're two functionaries of the same source. And that source is money, money, and more money. Listen, I'm your host, Hoi Kuwaku Timmons. I thank you guys again 
for joining me for episode eight of No Truths Barred. This is episode eight, dinner for three, Democrats, Republicans, and Wall Street. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back next week with episode nine. Tell your friends about No Truths Barred. Have some great guests coming up. Also, if you want to listen to the previous seven episodes, they're up. Much love, much respect. Stay safe out there. Peace and blessings to you all.